Throughout the year, we've noted that there is significantly more to halachic decision-making than simply analyzing the Gemara and the key sources in the Rishonim, classic codes, and the like, and applying it to the reality. And we noted that there is complexity in terms of how we weigh the primary sources, and we noted the role of poskim isn't just to analyze these sources, but is to ensure that the people that they are speaking to, for whom they are responsible for, will be amenable to listening, listening to the halachic decisions. And in that context, we've discussed many areas of policy that also integrate into halachic decision-making. At the beginning of the year, we noted that even within the halachic process itself, poskim have to take into account in a, a variety of extenuating circumstances, and we explain there the legitimacy of allowing those extenuating circumstances to motivate the poskim to adopt a different position than they might have taken under normal circumstances. Today, I want to analyze a particular instance of psikar halacha a factor which is unique in the sense that it is sometimes brought in, I think, internally to the halachic decision-making process. Sometimes it's explicitly brought in as a policy concern, prohibiting things which are on pure halachic grounds permitted. And, unlike many of the factors that are brought for psikat halacha b'sharat is not brought in primarily, or at least not exclusively, to generate a more lenient position, but is in fact invoked both l'kula and l'chumra, both to be lenient and to be stringent. And therefore it is a good example of the complexity of these issues and these extenuating circumstances, both within the determination of halacha and within halachic policy, and the ways in which those factors can push psak both in lenient and stringent directions. Specifically, I want to focus on the issue of Chilul Hashem, desecration of the name of God, and its positive flip, which is Kiddush Hashem, of sanctifying the name of God as a factor in psak halacha. Now, many of these sources have been analyzed in an excellent article in Tchumen, volume Chafei, by Rav Yaakov Charlap, and many of the sources we will draw on come from his analysis. I also want to address this today in part because it has been invoked in some of the discussions over Psakim that were issued in the context of the coronavirus, for example, is one of the reasons to prohibit certain types of, uh, of porch minyanim, backyard minyanim, even in cases when it might be legal, it might be safe, but is wrapped up in negative press uh, and the like that surround, surrounded um, minyanim. Um, and one of the factors that was invoked in at least some of the policy documents um, was uh, the concern for Chilol Hashem, and therefore it is a good time to discuss this factor in 
uh, in Psaq Halacha. Now, Chilol Hashem and Kiddush Hashem are fundamental values in um, Halacha and Hashkafa. To indicate this, it's sufficient to know that it's that Chilul Hashem and Kiddush Hashem seem to occupy unique places in terms of religious uh, values in general. So, for example, the Rambam in El Chachuvah in the first parak in El Chadalid notes that according to his categorization of Shuvah and Kapara of when and how one repents and gets forgiveness and atonement for his sins, he notes that all of his normal discussions of Chuvan Kapara apply to regular sins that don't entail a Chilul Hashem. But he writes, Bamedvar Mamurim Bishalo Chilelet Hashem Bishashavar. If someone sins and there is incorporated into his sin the desecration of the name of God, so then even if he had repentance and Yom Kippur came and he even suffered, he cannot be forgiven until the day of death. Now, without getting to the theological issues here, it's sufficient to know that the Rambam believes that Chilul Hashem is so unique, so fundamental, that all other Averot, besides for Chilul Hashem, have one set of rules for how one can get Kapara. And Chilul Hashem has its own set of rules. And similar sentiments are found in Shari Tshuva, in Chelek Gimel, in Siman Kuf Mem Gimel, though his exact categorization is uh, is different than the Rambam, and he actually goes farther and says that death will not be mechaper, ki lo yichaper amavet alav e'enlo chelek lo lam haba. And again, one sees that this seems to occupy a unique place in Halacha and Hashkafa. Now, the Rambam here is discussing a sin which entails Chilul Hashem. But if one looks in the Gemara in Yom Pevav, one sees that Chilul Hashem can be a standalone value, where by desecrating God's name, that itself is sinful, even if there is no other sin attached to it. And the Gemara's examples there are of Tamidi Chachamim, who take advantage of certain dispensations in terms of how they pay people in ways that are completely permitted but perhaps are not looked upon favorably by other people. And the Gemara defines this as Chilul Hashem. Similarly, the Gemara quotes Rabbi Yochanan's position that if a Tamid Chacham would go without his, without his Tfilin or Arba Amot below Torah, that would be Chilul Hashem. Again, without getting into all the details there, what one sees is that this concern for Chilul Hashem is independent of something which is otherwise prohibited or permitted. The value of Chilul Hashem or the danger of Chilul Hashem and the, and the benefit of Kiddush Hashem stand as intrinsic values. So obviously if one violates a sin and is Michal 
Shem Shamayim. That is particularly bad, as the Rambam notes. But as the Gemara outlines, Chilul Hashem itself is problematic, and therefore one under- will, will, can easily understand why it is so important that this be a factor in the psak and policy making of Alecha. Now, in the fifth paragraph of Hilchot Yisodei Atarad, the Rambam notes that Kiddush Hashem and Chilul Hashem, the notion of sanctifying God's name and desecrating it, lies behind the obligation of martyrdom and the three sins for which one must give up his life. The Rambam frames this as an obligation to sanctify God's name rather than violate murder, idolatry, and the forbidden sexual relationships. And the reason that when a non-Jew would threaten to kill a Jew if he wouldn't violate the Torah, even a minor sin, in a case of Shmad, in a case when the Jewish religion is under attack, is again an expression of the centrality of Chilul Hashem as a standalone value. Because there, what makes that violation of a minor sin, or even... As the Rambam notes, basically, Martin Sanhedrin, a minhag makes it Yehareg Val Yavor, makes it a cardinal sin, is the fact that there's Chilul Hashem involved. And at the end of that parak, the Rambam then moves to the standalone values of Chilul Hashem that we noted from the Gemara in Yom HaPivav, noting the Yishtvar Machirim Shehen Bechlal Chilul Hashem Vushayase Otam Adam Gadol Batarom Mufursam Echasidut if someone who is known as a tzaddik, who is known as a righteous person, and he does th- something that other people will speak badly about him, even if this is not a sin, that is chilul Hashem. And the Rambam notes that that is problematic and prohibited. So all of these sources should be sufficient to know, as we said, that the value of sanctifying God's name and the problem with desecrating it, both in the context where one is touching on actual halakha, violating halakha, and desecrating God's name in that context, or in cases where one is mechalel shim shamayim without violating another sin, these values are central And therefore, it makes sense that they will be factors in the determination of halacha and in the determination of policy. So let us begin with cases in which Chilul Hashem and Kiddush Hashem, the concern for these values, are invoked for policy decisions. Meaning, things which would not be prohibited in terms of um, intrinsic halacha, but the value of maintaining a kiddush Hashem, a positive um, view of the Jewish community, and avoiding a negative one, stand alone as reasons to implement halachic psak slash policy, um, but probably closer to policy. And as I said, the reason I'm thinking about this issue again is the fact that it was invoked um, at least in some of these policy documents, to prohibit certain minyanim, which could have been justified on legal grounds um, and even health grounds, but because of the, the general concern for 
um, the way things were going to be perceived at the height of the fear over coronavirus, certain communities, and, and this was uh, mentioned in some, especially in some of the um, documents coming out of Lakewood, they were concerned for Chilul Hashem, and therefore opted to, uh, to prohibit these minyanim. And, and making such policy concerns is, in fact, a... a very well-trodden path in halachic policy. So, to just bring a few examples, if one looks in the Masechet Ktar and Masechet Kutim, Barak Alav Halacha So, you find as follows, Eilud Varim Shein Mochrim Lahem, these are the things you do not sell to non-Jews, Lo Nefeilot Velot Trefot, not animals that died without shechita, or had one of the simanei tarfut, had one of the um, medical conditions or punctures in the lungs, physical uh, ailments, and the and the like that would that would halachically determine to let to make it die within a year. Loshkatsim lo masim. You don't sell bugs, creepy crawly things. Lo sandal shanevela. Lo shemen shetanvo shnavalto cholachbar. And then the the um, the mesachet kudim lists other cases. And he says, "Avo bish Yisrael ochlin mayem." You don't sell these even cases lo of where a Jew might eat. And these are the latter cases. There lo koskus lo shliel. Ein mochrin lahem ibnei. You don't sell it to them, you don't buy it from them. Why? Because you're holy. When you are holy, you can't allow another nation to be holier than you. And therefore, if something is understood by others to be problematic, to be weird, to be impure, you cannot eat it, even if it's technically permitted, because you can't do something that will make other people think that the Jews have a lower standard, ethically, religiously, spiritually, than other nations. They were chassidim, siman tafkav chavtet, right? There's something that non-Jews treat as prohibited, and Jews do not. A Jew still can't eat it. Because this might lead to the desecration of the name of God. And therefore you see that there were times in Zartana and the Sefer Hasidim when things became prohibited simply because of the way it would be perceived. Simply because it would set up standards that would make others think that Jews aren't as ethically, religiously sensitive as non-Jews, and that would be Chilul Hashem, and therefore, in these cases, it is halachic policy that drives us to take Chilul Hashem into account and prohibit things that otherwise would be permitted. The Shut, uh, in the Shut Sholom Eshev, Shol Nathanson, he writes as well that for him, this was the... Um, the reason that he felt that halacha recognized copyright law. However, he it's slightly distinct, because in the case of the Sefer Hasidim, he's talking about something, presumably, that is 
religiously, ethically, spiritually neutral. And therefore, the only reason to prohibit it was to prevent Chilul Hashem. But here, where you see that sometimes the line between policy and halacha is a bit more blurry. So in his Tshuvah, discussing whether halacha should recognize intellectual property, he writes, With regard to these warnings that people put on their books, that they shouldn't violate the copyright, essentially, if someone printed something and everyone is reading it and enjoying it, obviously he has rights to it. Um, and then he says, And it can't be that our Torah, our entire Torah, would be like the, um, the common speech. I mean, not important. Um, as other nations. And he notes that people recognize copyright. But the argument he makes here is interesting because he says it can't be that we would have a policy that other people don't have because the Torah has to be held to a higher ethical standard. But here, unlike in the case of the Sefer Hasidim where I would call that Chil Hashem as a reason for policy but not as part of the internal discussion for the Shalom the line between policy and Psak here is blurred because he says that the right thing is that it should be us. So he doesn't necessarily provide a halachic argument, but he says it would be a terrible thing if we wouldn't be as sensitive as others. And therefore, it sounds like, on the one hand, he's arguing for a Chil Hashem argument, but the other hand, the fact that it would be viewed as a Chil Hashem is also an indication that internal to halacha, there must be some more sort of rationale to recognize intellectual property. And here's where the centrality of Chil Hashem spills over from pure policy into policy slash an interpretive principle in Halakha itself. Um, another example can be found of this blurring of the lines can be found in the context of Ashavar Aveda. The Gemara in Sanhedrin writes that one is not obligated to return a lost object to a non-Jew, or perhaps it is even problematic. However, in the Yerushalmi, the Yerushalmi writes that there was a particular case in which Shimon ben Shatach bought a, uh, an, an animal and from a non-Jew, and they discovered a very precious uh, jewel that was attached to the animal. Um, and he returned it. And his student said, why did you return it? It's an Aveda. It's a lost object. You are allowed to keep it. And he says, it's true, but... Matan Sovereign, what do you think? Shimon Meshadach Barbara on Aveda? Do you think of a barbarian? Boy Aveda, Shimon Meshadach Mishmeh Brich Elan, do you die? 
The most important thing for me in this world is that someone should bless the name of the God of the Jews because of me. And that's indeed what happened. He returned the object and the non-Jew was so impressed that he gave a bracha to, to God, recognized the greatness of the Jewish God. And here, the Rambam incorporates this... Uh, this idea that on the one hand, perhaps it is prohibited to return an object, but it's permitted if there's a Kiddush Hashem. And here, it's again, not entirely clear as he's saying that it's Asur, but there's a policy that if Kiddush Hashem will come out of it, so then it is permitted. Or is he saying that that's internal to the Halachic Calculus, that if there's that Kiddush Hashem shows you that this is the right thing to do, and in a case in which it will accomplish that, it will show that you care about other people's property, and it will bring about the proper view, the ethical view of the halacha, so then, even though it might normally pro- be prohibited, so here it's permitted. I'm in the Rambam writes, Normally you can't return the lost object to these non-Jews because you're supporting uh, the wicked. But if you return it to show that we have faith in God and we're ethical, now in other cases you find it as um, explicitly a factor of Sharatrak Lekula that the possibility of Chilul Hashem allows us to rule in ways that we might not rule in lenient directions. So for example, the Rambam writes in Siman Reish Nun Chet, in his Chuvot, and it's quoted as well in a slightly different form in the Radbaz and Chelek Dalet, Chuvot Sadi Dalet, that in a place when people don't stop talking during davening, it would be better for people to not have at lachash, their private shmonazer, and daven as a community, because even though it's ideal that you have your private davening as well, it's better to rely on everyone davening together than have a situation where Chilul Hashem is created because people are constantly talking and not showing respect to, uh, to davening. Now, uh, Rev Harlap notes in his article that sometimes the same factor that might lead to Kula could also lead to Chumrah. Now, he gives a fascinating example there was a machlokas amongst the Italian Jews as to whether um, um, as to whether you were you, you were allowed to shave on Cholamoei. Now the argument there is that the Gemara says you are not allowed to shave on Cholamoei because we want to motivate people to shave and be ready for Yom Tov rather than rely on waiting to Cholamoei. But the question then came within Boskim, what happens in a culture where people shave daily and therefore there's nothing they could have done even if they shaved before Yom Tov so that won't make it that they won't have to shave again on Yom Tov. So does that change the halacha? Now, besides for the halachic arguments, 
he notes that the poskim then invoked Chilul Hashem as of the factor in how they should poskim in both directions. So he quotes Rabbi Yitzchak Shmuel Regio, who writes, Someone will ask a Jew, Why do you look disgusting on your holiday? He'll have to say, Because Chazal told us not to look disgusting, and therefore they forbade us from shaving on Yom Tov that we would look good. But obviously that's contradictory. And then the person will say, so you're keeping their decree in order to, you're, you're violating their decree in order to keep their decree. And you're going to have to come and say, well, you know, I'd violate their law. And he says, this will just be a weapon in the hands of those who want to be mechalal shem shamayim who want to talk badly about Judaism dochkach shem shamayim mechalal and he continues v'zei sabev chilulat Torah b'nei amim jamrunu nitpardach havilatam and therefore he thought that it was worth relying on the lenient interpretations to allow shaving on chalam However, there were those who at the same time, and he quotes of Avram Yonah from Venice, who said the opposite. He said, no, you have to err on the side of Chumrah. Because even if you could derive that it would be Mutter Meker Adin to change what we've been doing, because for so long we poskin it was usser, even if it's true that now maybe circumstances change, but if we start acting differently, people will look at us and say, look, their Torah changes, and it would be a chilul Hashem. And here you see that this concern for chilul Hashem, again, this is somewhere between policy and psak, because on the one hand it's a policy concern, but on the other hand it's motivating these poskim to either accept or reject particular halachic argumentation, and therefore you see how Chilul Hashem can be a factor in both halachic policy and in the interpretation of Psach as a factor of Sharat Chak. But you also see how the same factor can be used both Lakula or Lachumrah because the exact same factor motivated both the poskim who pushed to be lenient and the poskim who pushed to be stringent. Now other examples of Kula, so Rav Charlab documents the Ben Ishchai in the in the Chuvat Rav Palim deals with a case where a non-Jew comes to visit on Yom Tov, and one wants to provide him with coffee. Um, but if one prov- now one is not allowed to cook for a non-Jew on Yom Tov, and for that reason, Chazal also forbade inviting non-Jews to Yom Tov meals because you might end up cooking for them. But the question here was slightly different. You're allowed, if they happen to show up, to give them food because you're not cooking for them. But what happens if they come and you give them coffee, so now the coffee is already cooked, so that's permitted to give them. But if you give it to them, 
you'll have to cook a new pot of coffee for your family. So by giving to the non-Jew, it will have created a situation in which you now have to cook again. Is that problematic? And amongst other arguments that he makes, the Ben Yishchai says it's per- permitted because it would be a chilul Hashem for you to not be a gracious host and therefore that legitimates giving the coffee and if that means that you have to then be motivated to, uh, to make another cup of coffee for your families, that will be fine. And here, again, this integrates into the psaka, what's defined as ochel nefesh, of what is permitted to do on Yom Tov, by recognizing that this meta-concern of Chilul Hashem can integrate into how we paskin. Rabbi Yosef, in a lengthy tshuva chet, and Evan Ezra, Siman Yudbed, and Yabiya Omer, marshaled this as one of the arguments to rely on the lenient interpretations of halacha and permit marrying um, marrying Karaites. And he notes that there's room to be made based on the truth of the Bissamim Rosh. And he notes that the Bissamim Rosh is widely considered to be a forgery. It's attributed to the Rosh, but it's widely considered to be a forgery by Rav Shaul Berlin. And Ravadya notes that he, he's so convinced that it would be a chil Hashem to forbid marrying Karaites. And he notes in this tshuva, in our time, when they join the army and they give up their lives for Medinat Yisrael, it would be such a chil Hashem to not to consider them non-Jews, to not allow us to marry them, that he's willing to rely on the mekil shitot, even if he knows that the shita is not from the most... authentic of sources, he's willing to listen to the arguments made, and as long as he can come up with a halachic argument that's permitted, the concern of Chilul Hashem motivates him to look for, for Kula. And therefore what we've seen is that Chilul Hashem, the concern for Chilul Hashem and Kiddush Hashem, is central in Torah. And this manifests itself in certain ways. In one level, it affects policy. Things that have no halachic bearing. Prohibiting eating something which is completely permitted simply because others will look at us and say that that's just wrong. Sometimes Chilul Hashem can motivate halachic policy, but it also affects halachic decision, decision making, and sometimes the line between those is not so clear. And hence we noted then the argument for recognizing intellectual property, the Shalom Meshiv, says that not to not recognize would be Chil Hashem, because it can't be that our Torah is And here it's unclear whether this is pure policy or some combination of policy and a factor in, that motivated how he understands the halacha itself. We've noted that sometimes it's invoked Lekula to permit serving coffee to a, get, a non-Jewish guest that comes on Yom Tov, to allow relying on Chazar Ashats rather than have people talk through Chazar Ashats when they already davened Tfilat Lachash. We noted that uh, in, the, in Rabbi Vadya's tshuva that he, he was illy, even willing to rely on less than perfect halachic argumentation from problematic sources, admittedly with a combination of other arguments, 
because of the importance of allowing Karaites to marry, because he felt it would be Chil Hashem to allow these people to be not considered part of the Jewish community who sacrificed their lives for Medinat Yisrael. And from the case of the shaving on Cholom we noted that sometimes the exact same factor can lead to motivating people to accept lenient or stringent positions, both on the level of Tzikara Chabashat Atak, internal to the halachic decision-making process, and on the level of policy, um, which I think is important to highlight, that the belief that there is and that there is factors that can push both the internal halachic decision making and halachic policy and that the same policy dis- concerns can be can push as lekula or lechumram is critical to remember when we understand the complexity of the halachic process the last thing I'll note is that there are details that obviously must be worked out. Um, and in Rev. Harlab's article, he surveys the question of whether we're primarily concerned of Chilul Hashem amongst Jews or amongst non-Jews, which is obviously going to be one of the factors that a posseg will have to take into account when weighing this value of Kiddush Hashem in Chilul Hashem in Psak. But I hope that this was an example to show us how certain factors, meta-factors, can both be factors that are integrated in the halachic decision-making process and motivating halachic policy, and how the same factors can sometimes call lakula and lachumra, which highlights some of the complexity that we've discussed over the last few months.